It's after Obadiah, just so you know. Jonah 3, verse 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Thanks, Lydia. Uh, Good evening. Uh, If I haven't met you or you weren't here last night, my name's Andrew. Um, I'm from Wellington, so please be nice to me. The weather's mean enough as it is. Um, we're going to look at God's Word together. It'd be great if you can keep Jonah chapter 3 open. Um, And I'm going to pray as we get started. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, make your Word rule, your Spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. For the sake of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, To begin with, I want to tell you about a man named Michael Bennett Gardner Sr. The Gardner's important, you'll see in a minute. Um, uh, In 2012, he was convicted to 13 years in prison. The charges uh, for growing Australia's largest ever crop of cannabis. So Mr. Gardner, aptly named, uh, he managed to get caught growing $69 million of the stuff. Uh, And apart from his kind of very impressive cultivation, the craziest thing about Mr. Gardner was what he did when he was sentenced in court. Uh, When the judge handed down the prison sentence, uh, Mr. Gardner appealed. Uh, Do you know the grounds for his appeal? He appealed because he thought the prison sentence handed down by the judge was grossly insufficient. Not only did he admit his guilt to his gardening, uh, he demanded a more severe punishment for what he had done. He stood before the Court of Appeals judge and he asked for his his sentence to be extended to the full 20 years. That was the maximum for the crime, not the 13 years handed down by the judge that they were wanting to reduce to 10. Had they said the sentence was manifestly inadequate, 
that the judge had not fully grasped the significance of his actions. Now, that's interesting because that's unusual, right? People don't do that. Uh, It's not normal, at least in the first place, for someone to even admit their guilt. It's even more strange than to stand there before the judge and demand a harsher penalty. Uh, We live in a world where people almost never seem to admit when they're wrong. There's like a whole industry on how to do the kind of the PR non-apology apology. Even when people are caught red-handed, we still try and wiggle our way out of it. And so what's surprising about Mr. Gardner is his willingness to own up, his willingness to be held responsible for his actions. And here tonight in Jonah chapter 3, we see that sort of honesty, that sort of remarkable honesty, we see it on a massive scale. We see it on a a city-wide scale as we see that God is our merciful judge. So where do we leave our prophet Jonah? Uh, Well, uh, if you're here last night, you'll remember that in Jonah chapter 1, the prophet tries to run from God, but it is futile because we learned that God is the sovereign Lord. And this morning in chapter 2, from the belly of the fish, we heard Jonah and that praise of thanksgiving to God as we learned that God is the gracious Saviour. And kind of amongst the kind of half-digested fish food, uh, Jonah made a resolution. He made the resolution that he was going to follow through with the command that God had given him. Uh, We see this in uh, chapter 2, verse 9. It'd be worth having a look uh, with me in chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah says this, he says, But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will make good. What I have vowed I'll make good, says Jonah, and so we finished up Jonah chapter 2 with him kind of being vomited out by the fish onto dry land, and as Jonah kind of stands up on the beach and he's wondering what he's going to do about the smell, uh, the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. It's like Groundhog Day. It's almost exactly the same as the beginning of chapter 1. It's a new start for Jonah, it's a new beginning. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now now notice there the emphasis on a second time. This this word comes from the God of second chances. Uh, Now many of us, we know we've stuffed up, we know we've made mistakes, we know we've fallen short, we know that we've rebelled against this sovereign, holy God, but it's not all over. Because as Jonah experiences here on this beach, he is the God of of second chances. And having disciplined Jonah and then rescuing Jonah, there's Jonah doesn't get like a a nagging torrent of new warnings from God. Jonah is not kept in the doghouse to do his time. Nor does God give up on Jonah. Just go and find a more reliable prophet somewhere, one who hasn't hasn't got a blemished record. No, God simply issues exactly the same command as before. Come on, Jonah, let's give it another go. I hope you find that comforting. I I do. There are so many times that I have failed God. Our failure of God, uh, it's it's multifaceted, really. Um, I love the way the Anglican Book of Common Prayer kind of covers it all off. I'm not sure what it says about the Anglicans that they're so good at articulating our sin, but the Book of Common Prayer says that we've failed God because we've 
followed our hearts instead of his. We've broken his law. We've not done the good that we ought to have done and we've done evil that we ought not to have done. We've seen all of that in Jonah chapter 1, haven't we? And as I look in the mirror, I see that in myself. There are so many times we have failed God, but Jonah chapter 3 tells us that if we repent, he will give us another go. He is the God of second chances. And so with this second chance, Jonah obeys. Have a look there at verse 3. Verse 3, it's so clear. Jonah obeyed the word of God and went to Nineveh. Now, the Bible doesn't uh, quite explain this, but it's, um, it's a bit of an epic journey that Jonah's going on here. Like a walk from the beachside to Nineveh, uh, it's a walk of about 500 k's. It's not like you pop down after work for a surf. It's not that kind of thing. So Jonah, he has, um, he has plenty of time to do something about the smell, uh, but he's also got a lot of time to think about what's awaiting him as he walks into Nineveh. You see, Jonah is walking on his way to a city and into an empire that is world famous. Not just kind of world famous in New Zealand, but literally world famous, world famous for their violence, for what they did to people that they didn't like. As Jonah walks through the palace gates of Nineveh, either side of the gates were these massive inscriptions, massive inscriptions carved into stone, and they were pictures of the enemies of Nineveh being impaled, being beheaded, bodies being torn apart and used as decorations around the city. And this is what the Ninevites wanted the world to know about them. This is what they were famous for. This was their rep. Now, if you fly into Wellington, the first thing is you're thankful to be alive. Uh, True story, that was maybe not my plan, but I've definitely been on one like that. Um, The second thing you realize after you're thankful to be alive is you see this sign, the Wellywood sign, as we call it. And as you enter my city, it tells you something about the place, doesn't it? There are two things that are really clear about this sign that it tells you about the city of Wellington. We make movies and it's a little bit windy. You fly into Nineveh, you're greeted with beheading and impaling. And it's saying to all of those who want to venture into the city, don't mess with Nineveh, or this is what we will do to you. Remember in chapter 1, their wickedness was so bad, it had come up to God. It's as though God could no longer leave it unpunished. And so Jonah is trudging his way to Nineveh. He's putting his life on the line to deliver God's message. And as Jonah approaches Nineveh, we're told it's not just a violent city, but it is a significant city. Now have a look there in verse 3 of chapter 3. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Now the three days thing, it's it's not a sign of the 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 size of Nineveh, but more the importance, the significance of the city of Nineveh. Uh, Some translations say Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was significant. It had gravitas. If you're going to visit Nineveh and you're going to give it the attention that it deserved, it would take you three days, is what it's saying. To do it in any less time would be to be disrespectful. You would would not be giving the place the the significance and the honour that it deserved. 
Uh, before COVID happened, we would quite regularly have visitors come and stay with us, and they, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're on Google, and they're planning their holiday, and they're trying to work out how they can fit as much into the time that they have, and they would always ask, how long do you need to, need to see Wellington? And, you know, I've I want to say 40 minutes it takes about to drive from one end to the other. Maybe two hours if you took the scenic route and went around the bays. But that's not visiting, right? To do it properly, to go to the Beehive, to go to, to Papa, to go to Weta, to go on the, to go up Mount Victoria, to kind of do a, a cafe crawl of the city, it's going to take you a couple of weeks, I reckon. But for Nineveh, anything less than three days, well, that would be not doing it justice. And so Jonah, he rolls up to this dangerous and this important and this significant city and he begins to preach. And this is the moment we've been waiting for, right? The anticipation is building. After all that has happened so far, what, what does God's prophet have to say? Have a look there in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown and he's done. We're thinking, is is that it? Now come on, Jonah, you've had a month to think about this. You've walked from the beach all the way to Nineveh. Nineveh, surely you could have come up with a a slightly more dynamic message than that. Maybe you should have gone to my seminar this afternoon on giving a Bible talk. At least he gets points for keeping it short. Maybe he could have started with a personal story as a way of introduction to get them warmed up, to build some rapport. Hey, Jonah, tell them the story about the boat and the storm and the fish. You'll have me to end. They'll be begging to hear for more. Jonah's not short of material to work with. He could have started with his own testimony of repentance of knowing the God of second chances. Maybe offer it as an example of of, of what is possible when we call on the mercy of God. But no. Jonah just stands and delivers this short message about God's judgment. About God's judgment. Destruction is coming 40 days away. It's a pretty rough way to go about it. I don't know if you've read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. The first principle is, if you want to win people over, if you want people to like you, if you want them to listen to what you have to say, the first principle is, don't criticize, condemn or complain. Turning up to Nineveh and, and, and declaring the imminent judgment of God, that sounds like criticism And it certainly sounds like condemnation to me. If Jonah wants to get out of Nineveh alive, surely this is the wrong way to go about it. But that is the message that God gave Jonah and that is the message that they got. And that is the message that is recorded for us. Eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. And remarkably, it brings about one of the greatest revivals we see in the whole Bible. This makes Pentecost look like a picnic. Hundreds of thousands of people, a whole wicked city repents. 
and turns around. But why this message? Why so light on the details? I, I think it's deliberate. I think it's because God wants us to understand that this extraordinary revival, where this whole city turned from its wickedness and turned back to Him, I think God wants us to understand that this happened not because of the eloquence of the speaker, not because it was part of a really engaging worship service, not because Costa was there to answer all of their questions, not just because they went to, that Jonah went to my seminar on how to give a Bible talk. I think God wants us to understand that this epic revival happened because the city of Nineveh heard His Word. They heard His Word. That's what we read here. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. It doesn't say that the Ninevites believed Jonah. They believed God. They heard Jonah speak, but they heard God's Word. Although it was Jonah's speaking, it was, it was God's voice they were hearing. And they received Jonah's message they receive it from God. And they believe that the judgment really is coming. Now, many of us, we're, we're shy to mention the judgment of God that is spoken about in the Bible. It's, it's not how to win friends and influence people. But if we're going to be Bible reading, Bible teaching, Bible believing followers of Jesus, the reality of God's judgment on sinners, it's a truth that is unavoidable. If we've got a problem about speaking uh, to the world around us about God's judgment, then we have a real problem with the person of Jesus. See, unlike what many people think, Jesus, meek and mild, Jesus kind of just came to give us a big old hug and remind us that God loves us. Jesus actually says a lot about God's judgment. He speaks more about God's judgment than in the Bible. And he's constantly warning that judgment is coming. This is how Jesus himself describes that judgment coming at the end of the age. In, in Matthew 13, Jesus says, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil, they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why did Jesus talk like that? Why did God give such sobering words to his prophet Jonah? Well, it's because he doesn't want any of us to go there. See, we actually have no idea how bad it would be to live outside of God's blessing and his provision. We, we, we bask in God's goodness every single day. Whether we follow Jesus or not, we enjoy his goodness, we enjoy his kindness, we enjoy his creation and everything in it. And so to, to reject God, to turn away from his goodness and kindness, to be put out of his presence, like Jonah was as he went to the bottom of the sea. Jesus is saying, you don't understand how bad that would be you don't know what that's going to feel like. So please, please don't go there. And so out of love, Jesus warns us of the judgment to come. 
You see, if we airbrush God's judgment out of the Bible, if, um, if we take it away, the whole idea of Jesus' death on the cross, it doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense. Imagine this, imagine I walked out those doors, I know, it's after the morning session, I'm, 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 I'm in a hurry to get my, my scroll for morning tea and get to the front of the queue for the coffee van, and, and I do the right thing and I stop at the lights. You all know what I'm talking about. And Jesus is on the other side of the road and, and Jesus sees me and he calls out, Andrew, I love you, and then he throws himself in front of a bus. And there's blood everywhere and it's a terrible shock and when we eventually get over it, we, we can't work out why he did it. There's clearly something weird going on. I mean, he said he loved me, but I never asked him to do that. I didn't need him to do that for me. I have no idea why he would do that. It makes no sense. But if on the other hand, I say to you, I was out there crossing the road on my way to morning tea to get my scroll and to get the front queue of the coffee van and I was in a hurry and so I didn't wait for the lights like I've seen some of you do, Dave Clancy. <laughs> this house, I'm going to check the bed for spiders tonight. No, it's in New Zealand, that's not a thing. Um, but I cross the road, I don't wait for the lights. And I'm like one of you, just looking at my phone as I'm walking across the road. And then Jesus runs out and he shoves me and says, Andrew, I love you. And then he gets hit by the truck and there's blood everywhere. Now I realise that he died to save me. I was going to be hit by that truck. He was run over in my place. He took my death. Jesus did it on the cross. It's only when we understand that judgment is coming. It's only then that we realise that the death of Jesus' cross in our place. It's amazing it's wonderful. He, he there on the cross suffered my judgment. He took my punishment so that I wouldn't have to face it. And that's an amazingly loving thing to do. He died on the cross for you and for me. And we need to understand the reality of God's righteous judgment if we're ever to understand why Jesus went to the cross. And Jonah, he certainly didn't leave out judgment as he spoke to Nineveh. He really didn't speak about anything else. Um, but look at, look at Jonah's words there, though. They're a warning of, of coming judgment. You see, God gives the people of Nineveh notice. You've got 40 more days, he says, before you'll be overturned. Have you ever wondered why God doesn't destroy Nineveh right away? They, they, they certainly deserve it. Why does he wait? Well, here God is showing his patience. He is giving them time to repent, to come to their senses, that he might have a chance to relent. This is his divine forbearance, his patience. And we find ourselves in a similar situation. The world sits under the righteous judgment of a holy God. And yet that holy God is being patient. He is holding back his judgment. He is not giving us what we deserve. And why? Well, so all those conversations we heard about in that interview can happen. He's giving us time. He's giving our world time to repent, to come to their senses, so that 
he might have the chance to relent. So they might repent, so they might see their sin. So they might realise that they have turned their back on a holy God, realise that just judgment is coming and turn back to him. And that's exactly what we see happens in Nineveh. Uh, Take a look at verse 5 again. Uh, Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed and all all of them, from the the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Do you see that? The Ninevites believed God. Uh, It's remarkable. It's extraordinary to think that if we actually pass on the gospel message, if God can open people's eyes... Now, don't, don't just think that the Ninevites believed uh, Jonah because they, were, they didn't have mobile phones and so they were stupid. Uh, they're just kind of ancient people and so they're a bit thick. Uh, their brains were the same size as yours and mine. They just wore slightly different clothes. They weren't gullible or unsophisticated. The change happened because God spoke to them through His Word. Uh, so we, we shouldn't be frightened if you don't feel very impressive or very clever, well, God loves to use weak and ordinary people just like us. People who don't get the words right, people who feel all nervous, people who are giving it a go for the first time, people with nothing to gain, except that it is true. The judgment is real and the Saviour is there. And if God decides to show mercy, He can open the eyes of anyone to see the truth. If He could do it for Nineveh, He could do it for anyone. And so Nineveh, they believe the Word of God. Uh, The Word of God, it even gets the king uh, and he makes it official. Verse 6, verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Uh, it's quite a picture. It's quite a picture of humility, isn't it? The message of God, it's, it's, it's spreading like wildfire throughout Nineveh. It's going viral. Now, that's a phrase that hasn't aged well, but it, it's going everywhere. Uh, no quarantine or lockdown has kept it out of any room or any place. Uh, Jonah's only set a, a, a foot into Nineveh. It's only one day of his three-day journey and already the, the message of God's judgment and, and the message of repentance so that God might relent has rushed on ahead of him. And take a look at what the king orders in verse 7. Verse 7, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals in sackcloth, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent with compassion relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It's it's astonishing, a whole city, a whole nation humbles themselves and they, they ask God for a second chance. They're pleading to God for his mercy and his compassion. You might be wondering what's the deal with the animals? Um, what, why are they fasting and getting down in the dust and putting on sackcloth and ashes. I, I worked at a church once uh, where a lady used to bring her dog along um, and, and I didn't know this until uh, one day I got the shock of my life. I'm handing out the, the, the bread and the juice for the Lord's Supper and there's Fido staring back at me, wagging his tail. Am I supposed to give the dog the communion as well? I wasn't sure. 
What's going on here with these animals? Well, I think what's happening here is that the livestock, they are the currency of the day. It's as though the Ninevites, they're not just repenting themselves, they're not just themselves getting down in the sackcloth and ashes, they're repenting with their wallets as well, with their fortune, with their future. You see, livestock that don't eat, life fasting, they don't provide you with much of a future, do they? The milk dries up, the meat becomes lean. And it's as though the Ninevites are burning that bridge and saying to God, God, we are guilty. And God, what we need, more than we need food in our stomachs, more than we need clothes on our back, more than we need a roof over our head, more than we need money in the bank, more than the security that comes from all of this wealth, what we need more than anything is for you, God, to show us compassion. It's for you to relent. It's for you to not give us what our sins deserve. And when the people of Nineveh do this, what happens? Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways and had compassion and did not bring upon them the judgment or the destruction that he had threatened. Sorry, God didn't bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So Nineveh repents and God relents. Nineveh calls on God's compassion and he responds with his mercy. Now, do you long to see that happen in your town, in your city? Do you long to see that happen on your campus, in your hall of residence? Do you long to see that happen in your family? Do you want to see people all throughout New Zealand escaping the judgment of God, calling mercy, repenting from their wickedness and turning back to Him? Well, if you do, we need to warn them of the judgment that is coming. We need to love our country and our city and our family and our friends. We need to love them enough to be honest with them about the danger that they face. Love them enough to tell them the truth so that they might too call on God for mercy. On the 26th of December in 2004 in Thailand, John Croston was swimming in the waters around Phuket when he suddenly realised that the, the water, the beach around him, the water just seemed to disappear. Boats were just marooned on the sand, fish were gasping for breath, wondering where the sea had gone. Afterwards, John said, I'd studied some geology and in an instant I was overtaken by with the overwhelming certainty that we were about to experience a tsunami. He then ran up the beach shouting, Tsunami! Tsunami! Urging all the people to flee. Remember, this guy's English, so it's, it's very out of character. Um, he got up to the resort and, and the, as the shuttle bus had just pulled in and it's, arri- it's filled with people who've all arrived for their, to begin their tropical holiday and they're excited and they want to get out and he's shouting at these passengers, tsunami, tsunami, on the bus. They're probably getting a little bit anxious because there's this raving mad guy out, out, out at the bus. So he's shouting at them and luckily a doctor on the bus overhears what he's saying. And he believes the warning and he tells the driver, turn around, drive up the hill, escape to safety. Afterwards, John said, I consider myself a relatively reserved person, not prone to overreaction, but on that beach I left all my inhibitions behind. You see, he knew that the momentary embarrassment of a few people thinking he was a little bit crazy 
he knew that that was vastly outweighed by the consequences of not saying anything at all. He knew that the wave bearing down on that beach wasn't just an idea, it wasn't just a matter of opinion, it wasn't just something that was true for him and not true for you. It was reality, it was coming, it was bearing down on them. And so nothing would keep him quiet. Tragically, those who refused to listen to him died that day. And do you think that John cares that anyone thought he was weird at the time? Or rather, don't you think he wouldn't be able to sleep at night if he did something? Jonah warned of the coming judgment and with the same urgency, we need to find the words to warn the world around us. We need to tell people that they're in great trouble. But we also need to tell them that there is a great Saviour. God has sent a rescuer. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, He says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. There is great trouble, but there is also a great Saviour. We need to heed the warning too. God's righteous judgment is coming on my sin. I I stuff up all the time. I'm selfish, I get angry, uh, I've cheated, I've taken advantage of people for my own gain. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have failed God. I've pushed Him away, I've ignored His word, I've done things my own way. I don't know about you, but I know that I deserve the just punishment of God on my sin. But the great hope of Jonah chapter 3, the great hope of the gospel, is that if we call on God for mercy, He will show us mercy. Because Jesus has taken God's just punishment for us on the cross. He has taken the punishment, He has taken the judgment that I deserve, the judgment that you deserve. And so we can call on God, we can ask for mercy, we can be welcomed back because of Jesus. Welcomed back by the God of second chances because He is our merciful judge. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we have sung today that our our sins are many, but your mercy is more. Our sins are many that we have sinned against you and deserve your righteous judgment. But you are a merciful judge and you welcome those who return back to you. And so, Lord, we confess our sin and we turn back to you and we call on you for your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for the Nineveh, we thank you for their example of that you do show mercy when people repent. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that you will show mercy on us because Jesus has taken the punishment for us already. And Lord, help us to not be afraid to speak of your judgment 
to a world that stands condemned. Lord, help us to love people enough to open our mouth, to tell them the truth, so they might call on you and receive your mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to stand and sing again. Um, With God's judgment in mind, we're going to sing this song. It's based on Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming 